Dear listeners, you are tuned in to WOWD 94.3 FM, and this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listeners, we are on the threshold of the spring season, and that means a ton of religious holidays. In addition to the spring equinox, this week marks Holi in Hinduism, Hola Mohala in the Sikh faith, Maga Puja in Buddhism, and Purim in Judaism. And during our conversation today, we'll be learning more about Nauru's, the Persian New Year, which is celebrated by both Zoroastrians and Baha'is. Dear listeners, it's a beautiful sunny day. I'm feeling good. I hope you're feeling good. How about my guests? Are you guys feeling good today? Yes. All right. That's good. So without further delay, let's spring into some interfaith-ish. Dear listeners, I'm joined in the studio by two guests. Hormuz Katki comes from a family of Zoroastrian priests in India. He was ordained as a Mobedyar, or a lay priest, in 2017 and presently serves the Zoroastrian Association of Metropolitan Washington, or ZAMWI. In his day job, Ormuzd works as a at the National Cancer Institute as a tenured investigator. So welcome to you, Ormuzd. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Also joining us today is Nicole Best, who serves the D.C. Baha'i community as a program coordinator in the local Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program, which focuses on young people between the ages of 11 to 15. Additionally, Nicole is a musician who sings and plays guitar and the piano, and she's currently working on an album that contains the Baha'i writings that she and other collaborators have put to music, and we'll get a chance to listen to some of that later in the program. Welcome to you, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. And I will mention up front that, like Nicole, I am also a member of the D.C. Baha'i community. So, almost many people listening to this show may have never met a Zoroastrian, and uh, perhaps even others don't know anything about the Zoroastrian tradition. So, can you tell us a little bit, a little 411 about Zoroastrianism? Sure, of course. So, Zoroastrianism was the religion of ancient Persia before the Islamic conquest. Our prophet, Zarathustra, was, no one is sure exactly when he lived, but around 2000 B.C., and he's considered to be the first to to bring the, the, a, con- a conception of having a a monotheistic religion with with a strict definition between good and evil. Hmm. And a lot of what what Zarathustra personally talked about was the need for peoples who were currently nomadic and you know that the times were war, there was war and and he was encouraging people to form villages, settle down into towns, become farmers. Hmm. And so animals and nature are a very important part of, of, the, of the religion as well. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> for me, the branch that I'm from is that after the Islamic conquest of, of Iran, my ancestors left and came to India a thousand years ago, where we've lived ever since. Okay. And in India, we're called Parsis. Okay. And there are many notable Parsis you might have heard of, for example, like Freddie Mercury of the rock band Queen. <laughs> oh, great, great. And others, for, uh-huh. example, for instance. Okay, so so the community has. I mean, we're really going back very, very far into into our history. So how how far how far back does uh, Zoroastrianism go? 
So it goes before, even before the time of Zarathustra. Uh-huh. So it goes, uh, it goes back to the same um, um, ancient Hinduism and ancient Zoroastrians mm. that have the same ancient root. Our, 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 our oldest texts are written in, in languages that are very similar to Sanskrit. Oh, wow. Okay. And so the primary communities at this point are in Iran, modern-day uh, Persia, and, and, then, um, and then in India, where the Parsi community right. is. Those are the main sort of overtly, openly known Zoroastrians. Mm-hmm. There are many Zoroastrians in, at throughout sort of Central Asia and Middle East who, who quietly practice or... Um, 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 people, for example, live in Tajikistan. Okay. Or um, there are many um, Kurds as well who are who are uh, who are Zoroastrian or call themselves Zoroastrian or um, have um, aspect of the Zoroastrianism as part of their um, their, their their religious observances. Mm-hmm. And so you talked about nature being an important facet of Zoroastrianism. So you know we're here at the beginning of spring. Um, and Nauru's is the celebration of that new year. So I imagine that that cycle tying into the the spring equinox and everything is is a key part of that, also, right? Absolutely. That 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 it that in addition to having a monotheistic god, that um, that that are who's named Oramazda or the Lord of Wisdom. Hmm. They, there are all, he also has six helpers who also represent six different creations on Earth who protect. Um, um, people, animals, plants, water, earth, that sort of thing. And they also have a greater significance in terms of, of how we, um, as, a, as a sort of a path for how we live our lives and organize into, into communities um, that, that, are, that are ruled by, by a, a rule of law and justice. Mm-hmm. So if you were to go to a Zoroastrian celebration of Nauru's, what would you see? What would you experience there? Yeah. So this is an int- interesting point. In there's a real difference between India and Iran. We've mm. been apart for a thousand years, and in the West we come together. And what's interesting is is that so we see each other as long lost cousins. Okay. And but there's just enough differences to cause friction uh-huh. a, as well too. So actually, in our family, actually celebrating um, the the the, the Noros or, or Navros is kind of as we say in India. Oh, okay. Is actually something that we've learned from Iranians here in um, in America actually. Mm. So, so, so having a you know had the tra- tra- traditions like having a what people call the Hatsin table, where you set up a table with with seven things that are that from the letter Sh in, in in Farsi, for example, things like that are things that we've learned here and we don't do in in India. Okay, so your family traditionally in Iran would not have the same celebration of Nauruz or at the same level than as as uh, those who are coming directly from uh, Iran or Persia. Exactly. It's a little bit different. The The main difference is is that the five days before Navarro's are considered holy days where where the spirits of the dead come to earth to be here. And we have rituals for, for, the, for those days. And in India, we're very strict about these rituals. We, mm. have, you know, the, the, we, have, we have a series of ceremonies and prayers. That you you set you you give a list to the priest of all the all the all the loved ones who passed away, hmm. and the prayers take hours <laughs> to go through typically. And you're the guy who's responsible for some of it here. That is correct. <laughs> yes. If you're just joining us, this is Interfaith Ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking this morning with Hormozd Katki, a lay priest with the Zoroastrian Association of Metropolitan Washington. My other guest this morning is Nicole Best, a program coordinator with the D.C. Baha'i Communities Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program. So, Nicole, tell us a little bit about the Baha'i faith, which also has its roots in Persia. Absolutely. 
yeah, so the Baha'i faith is a world religion um, and was brought to humanity by Baha'u'llah. Um, Baha'u'llah is an Arabic name and it means glory of God. So in the 1800s, in the mid-1800s, Baha'u'llah came, um, was born into present-day Iran, it was Persia at the time, and taught the oneness of God, that there is one God, the oneness of religion, that throughout humanity's history and evolution, there have been divine teachers that have brought a message to connect humanity with that one source. So examples include Jesus Christ, Muhammad, um, and like all these religions, these, these major religions, Zoroastrianism included, um, and see that religion is one and one common has a one common thread that at the core of it they believe in in the one in in unity in these virtuous lives um, so the the other tenant of the Baha'i faith another principle is the oneness of humanity and that's really at the core what does it look like to be united with a very globalized world mm -hmm. um, we live in a time where people come from different cultures and are interacting and learning how to work together um, so Baha'u'llah has brought the teachings to enable us to to do that yeah. well so Zoroastrianism coming many thousands of years ago mm -hmm. As as you were saying, almost the, the bringing people together from these very disparate, you know, tribes or small small communities, families even, um, and and saying this is a time for us to come together into even just more of a settled population. It sounds like, and the Baha'i faith now thousands of years later is is kind of picking up, continuing that thread mm -hmm. of of saying you know look even to the globalized world as as that family. That's right. right. That's right. Interesting. So um, so share with us a little bit about what the um, Baha'i uh, celebration of Nowruz is like. How did Baha'is prepare for that? What does the celebration look like? Yeah, it's a very special time of year. As I'm sure we're all very excited that winter is almost over, <laughs> um, but for many reasons. And in, in the Baha'i faith, we've just observed, actually today is the last day of the 19-day fast that Baha'is all over the world observe. And that fast is a very beautiful time of reflection. It's a time of prayer. It's a time of uh, both spiritual and material fast. So um, we don't eat or drink anything during the day. Um, and then we're also just conscious of our spiritual nature as human beings that uh, we have been created with the purpose of knowing and, and loving our one God. Um, and so being connected with that. Uh, but tomorrow, or actually today at sunset, marks Noruz. So it's a very celebratory time that ends that period of fasting. Um, so it's, it's celebrated all over the world. Uh, because there are Baha'is all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, and what will it look like in, mm -hmm. in you're hosting a, a, yeah. a celebration. So what, what do you guys have planned? Yeah, so there are actually four different celebrations here in DC um, and they're happening at the neighborhood level. So we're inviting all our neighbors to participate, some of which are not so familiar with the Baha'i faith, some of which maybe have been participating in, uh, in it for a while, but uh, it looks like joining with prayers, um, there's a lot of music, there's food, it's really just a beautiful celebration. Um, and depending on what culture you go to, it's beautiful because each different culture infuses its own uh, element to that celebration. So different traditions, different dances, different music. Mm -hmm. uh, so it doesn't, every, every celebration doesn't look the same. Mm -hmm. um, and that also appreciates the diversity of the human family. 
Um, but for those who are from Iran, there are similar uh, traditions of hafsin and, and other things that the Persian friends will, will put out during that time. Mm -hmm. But really for, for people all over the world, it'll look a little different. Here in D.C., we're going to have prayers and music and, mm -hmm. and food. Cool. So two different celebrations of, of Nauru's, one that has prescribed liturgy that's set forth over thousands of years, and then the Baha'i tradition, which depended on the context and who's participating mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah. All right, this is uh, Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We've been talking this morning with Nicole Best, a program coordinator with the D.C. Baha'i Community's Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program, and Hormoz Katki, a lay priest with the Zoroastrian Association of Metropolitan Washington. So, Hormoz, as I mentioned in the intro, you have a family lineage of Zoroastrian clergy, of priests. Um, so did you have a strong connection to the tradition when you were growing up? So my parents, having come here, we're, we're starting a new community. We're, we're from, you know, historically been from India and very much of an ethnic community. Mm -hmm. And coming to the West is, it's very, it's very different. And when was, when was this? When did your family come? So my parents came in the 70s. Mm -hmm. and, and so the, the main thing that Zoroastrian parents in India teach their children are, are the prayers. Mm. And so we, and the prayers are written in the, in the ancient, in the, in the ancient languages. And so we, we learn to recite them by, by heart, actually quite often. And, and in those days we had, uh, we had, we had community gatherings at people's houses. We might rent out a church or something for, for a larger celebration. But that was the, that was, that's the main way that parents have passed on the religion in the past is through teaching children the the prayers. Mm -hmm. And did you um, really take ownership of this as a as a young man? Were you were you uh, immersed in it and and really enjoyed that, or was it something that you rebelled against? What was your experience? <laughs> so so when I when I was fortunately I'm good at remembering these things, <laughs> so it's easy. It was easy for me. And now now that I'm you know now that I'm teaching my kids and te teaching other kids in our in our children's classes, I see it's a different experience for different children. Uh huh. And so. And so when I was so that that was fine. When I got younger, older, I started, um, yeah, the Tibetan when you're a teenager, you start questioning these things. Sure. You start wondering what's true and what's not, and that sort of thing. But, um, but but when but when I was young, it was it was uh, it was important to me. I knew we were a very small community, mm. and I I've, I've always known that that um, that we have a sort of a special obligation to keep our community going. Yeah, I imagine that, as you were saying, that for the parents, that, that sense of continuity is, is particularly important because not only is it a minority even in, in the place where, where they're originally from, but now you're coming, as you said, to the West, and I imagine, you know, the community looks and feels a lot different here and, and are, you know, a fraction of a percentage of the greater population. So there's sort of a, an, an insistence, maybe, on, on, on keeping those communities together. That's right, um, and one of the one of the real challenges is that within just one generation, we move from a very moving from a very ethnic ethnic religion, mm. born the religion, to being in America, which is a which is a much very different atmosphere. I remember my parents telling me that Hormuzd, India respects ethnicity, 
And I think what they mean by that is is that is that people can live in their own communities. For example, um, Parsi Zoroastrians live in their own. They call they call colonies actually mm. <laughs> their own you know, their own their own set of buildings. And, and this sort of thing is, wouldn't be allowed in America, for example. Mm. Um, and so and so each individual community can sort of. Um, can be by itself in this way, and in America we're much more diffuse. You know, we live all over the country. You know, all over North America, the West too. You could always find a Zoroastrian in some whatever small place that you go to. Yeah, we don't have a, con- a particular concentration anywhere, uh-huh. and so adjusting to that is is very difficult because there's there's even here in Washington there's maybe um, for, for for members of our association maybe um, 500 members. Mm. Well, and maybe an equal number who um, who don't come regularly. Got it. Got it. Nicole, what about you? Um, you're from a Baha'i family, right? That's so right. does it go back many generations in your family? Yeah, so on my mom's side, my mom is from Iran. Mm-hmm. And I think for four or five generations, uh, the Baha'i faith was was a part of my mother's family. And, and um, so for my father's side, uh, he became a Baha'i. He found the Baha'i faith in his adult life. He came from a Catholic background, uh, born in the U.S. and Arizona, and um, he uh, he met my mom. And at that at that point, they had both found, or he had found the faith, and um, she had been raised in the Baha'i faith. So, um, yeah, I I was also raised in the Baha'i faith, and I feel very blessed to to have been because it is a very outward-looking religion where you see the beauty of the human family and the the need for the one the principle of the oneness of humanity and for me I also there was a time um, you know in my in my early or maybe late teens that I was questioning and thinking about okay well what does it mean to be a Baha'i and I think one thing that's very important is that every Baha'i is striving to be a Baha'i we are striving to live uh, up live up to these standards and these beautiful words that Baha'u'llah has written. Um, and so for me, I saw truth in these words would make my life better mm. and would contribute to humanity in a way that is purposeful, that is meaningful, um, and would kind of uplift humanity. Um, so for me, that's where that connection grew stronger, mm-hmm. is I saw the, the need for teachings like that. Was there a, a similar struggle to what Ormos was talking about in terms of the smallness of the community and, and struggling to, to feel sort of a connection because maybe amongst your peers, I don't know, were, were you the only, only Baha'i in your area? Um, growing up, there were maybe five Baha'is in my high school. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that's a common, for some it, it might be more, for some it might be less, depending on where you're from. I was raised in Arizona, so um, the, I mean, there, there was a sizable community okay um but yeah i think people were always asking me about what is the baha'i faith or what i've never heard of that and still people ask and mm-hmm. i'm happy to tell them but mm-hmm. i think you see uh, more and more people kind of intrigued by it because it is something they haven't really heard of before um but yeah it, it never just because it was new it, it made sense to me that i would explain it to others and it was never it it is very um it's growing quite rapidly mm-hmm. um so but no i don't think there was ever like a disconnect between um seeing a smallness in numbers mm-hmm. and and my my faith but yeah i i think because of my be- the seeing the beauty in in the religion i was happy to, to yeah. share it and given the fact that it's it's a it's a newer tradition, mm-hmm. um, 
there isn't the thousands of years of 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 history and ritual and so forth right. so where's the questioning come come into mm -hmm. that because you're not necessarily chafing against you know oh this is the way our family has always done things right or right. or I, I don't know what what was that experience for you yeah i think at some point one one questions their purpose in life what is it all for um you know you you question the way that you've been raised uh and um certain certain ways that you do things uh, and I think that's maybe part of a very natural part of, of one's life um, but one one very important part of the Baha'i faith is the principle of independent investigation of truth mm. and so for each individual it's their responsibility to understand the religions for themselves understand the divine writings for themselves the holy scriptures and see truth for themselves um, and so for me, that was also being raised in the, in the Baha'i faith. I, I looked to the Baha'i writings. I looked to other religions' writings. I took classes about different religions in university. Um, but it, it's very much about exploring that and, and um, taking responsibility for that journey, that spiritual journey. Everyone's journey is different or might look different. Mm -hmm. um, but that is one's own responsibility to mm -hmm. find that truth. Almost. what about for you? How did you make the decision to not just be active in the Zoroastrian community, but actually step into the role as a, as a lay priest. So when I was, so to become a priest in, in the religion, historically it had to come from a family. It's, it's, it's limited to, to men and your father, your grandfather, et cetera, has to have to have been in it. And you're typically inducted when you are uh, before, before puberty as, as a boy. And when I was young, I knew my father might've liked that. But he didn't pressure me, and I thought hard about it, and I decided I was only considering it really to make to make my family happy, mm. and so I didn't I didn't do it, and but I've always wondered if that was the right um, decision or not, and um, and certainly as I got older, sort of questioning things, yeah, I said, oh, I'm glad I didn't do that. <laughs> I don't feel as committed, but um, now that I've you know been here and you know, I've lived here in the D.C. area, you know, basically basically all my life. And we have a we have a small community. We only got our first priest back in about 1996, mm. and he is he's been overworked and been overburdened, and so and so when, if he's not here, we don't have services. And so there there was one time where we had an an, an older priest come down from somewhere else. He was he's deep in his 80s, and we were having funeral ceremonies, and he was unable to complete the the demanding the demanding ceremony. Mm. And so I decided at that point that. That in in the West in America, there's now this this new option of of a lay priest that we call a mobedyar. A mobed is a priest. Mobedyar means friend of the mobed, as someone who can who can do who can do many different kinds of rituals, such as such as such as death ceremonies, ce cel celebrations. We're not allowed to do um, marriages or ceremonies to induct people in the in, into the religion called the Navjot ceremony. Mm -hmm. That has to be an, a Mobit that does that up. That's correct, yeah. Because mm -hmm. those questions remain uh, controversial in our 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 community. That we've always married within the community historically and and raised only our children to be mm -hmm. to be to be Zoroastrian historically. Mm-hmm. And so and so uh, for the and so it was a year and a half of training. Actually I trained on Skype with a with a priest in Florida. Well, wow. 
actually, because it's we we don't have many people here in in, in here in the West. Yeah, the tradition becomes modern. <laughs> That's correct, and, and exactly these technologies are important because we're so far spread across across the West. Actually, mm -hmm. it's been very important, and so I was ordained in 2017, and I've been doing these kinds of rituals here within the within the community. Cool. This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking this morning with Hormoz Katki, a lay priest with the Zoroastrian Association of Metropolitan Washington, and Nicole Best, a program coordinator with the D.C. Baha'i Community's Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program. Hormoz, you know, as, as a father, um, I imagine some of these questions about how do you, how do you, uh, continue these this association and understanding of the traditions for your own kids are are something that that um, your family is considering. Um, so so how do you do that day to day? What, what how do you keep your kids connected um, to their um, Zoroastrian uh, tradition and community? It's an important question because I. I myself am intermarried. My wife is a Christian, mm. and we made a decision to raise our children as Zoroastrian, largely because uh, to be accepted in the community, uh, if you're historically if you're intermarried like that, you wouldn't be accepted in the West. It's possible, but uh, you have to be in the community from birth, and everybody gets to know you and trust you and say, "Yeah, okay, all right." <laughs> And so, and so, and so we decided to do that. And so a lot of that is, is just has, as my parents did for me, is, is teaching my children the, the prayers as well, but also, which takes a lot of time and, and um, fortunately my children are good at it like I am. <laughs> <laughs> and are they looking forward to celebrating our Aarhus? Is that something that the kids particularly are excited about? They get it exactly. It's it's a, it's a time for excitement. We buy new clothes and oh. we have fun and things like that. And nice. So nice. Yes, they get to eat and stay up late. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Very cool. So Nicole, you don't have kids yourself. I don't. Um, but you hang out with a lot of kids because you're working in this in this youth empowerment program. So tell us a little bit about about what that program is is like and mm -hmm. and um, who in the community you're working with. Sure. Yeah, the Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program is a global program, actually, and really sees the age of 11 to 15. I think we remember what that's like for us, uh, but as a very important time in one's life. You're going through a lot of transitions. You're really seeing the world in a new light. You're not quite a child anymore. You're not quite a teenager or an adult, um, but you're very aware and conscious of, of things that are happening in your society and your community. So how do we help these junior youth to see their contribution to community life? And what we help them think about um, is what does it mean to be a human being? Like, what are the what are the contributions that I want to make through service? And what's beautiful is all throughout DC, groups of maybe ten middle schoolers are getting together uh, within a certain neighborhood. They're starting to read the reality of that neighborhood. What are the what are the social ills of my community? What are the strengths that can be built on? Uh, and how can I, as a young person, um, contribute to to advancing my community not only materially but spiritually what are these moral foundations that I can contribute to so I think the more that we develop in ourselves uh, these qualities of love justice honesty compassion the more our communities can reflect that 
Um, so it's been really wonderful to work with different groups who are developing their power of expression to share the things that they're thinking about clearly, um, to identify these spiritual qualities within themselves and within their community members. Mm -hmm. And then also to create a moral framework in which they're, they're basing the decisions of their life off of that framework. Um, so like what decisions are more in line with my nobility as a human being? Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's been a really beautiful program. I've learned so much from it and we continue to learn a lot with them. So all of the, the ways that you described it, it sounds like there are a lot of practical skills that are mm -hmm. there about, about sort of the lived reality of the participants. Um, and even, you know, I could, I could say just based on the language that you're using, one might consider that to be, you know, secular values as well mm -hmm. or humanist values. So what is it that's uniquely Baha'i about that experience for those people that are participating? Sure. So I'll just say that this program is open to all, not just Baha'is. Uh, and it brings people from very different religions together. And one capacity that it also builds is how does a group of people come together to pray, to worship the same creator together, to remember God together. Um, we also are studying quotations from the Baha'i faith that relate to any religion. So the first quotation, for instance, that the junior youth study is, let your heart burn with loving kindness for all who may cross your path. And I think for, for anyone, that is a universal concept that we must be kind to one another. Um, and so they start to think about what does that look like in my family life? What does that look like with my friends? Um, but the, the writings of, of the Baha'i faith are embedded in this curriculum that they study um, and also talks about stories from different middle schoolers all over the world and, mm. and kind of the different cultures that they come from, the different questions that they're asking. So there's a curriculum that we study together, but then the practical component is the service project that they come up with on their own. Um, so in that sense, it is related to the, to the Baha'i faith, uh, but that component of prayer and reflecting on some of these quotations from the Baha'i writings is what sets it apart. Mm -hmm. This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We've been talking with Nicole Best, a program coordinator with the D.C. Baha'i Community's Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program, and Ormuz Katki, a lay priest with the Zoroastrian Association of Metropolitan Washington. Back in a minute. Of humankind, and to the alien, be a friend. 
restoring breeze and to the ailing be a fresh restoring breeze be kind to all people care for every person do what you can of your by the hearts be kind to all people care for every person do all you can of your by the hearts and minds of men and minds of men be pleasing waters to all those who thirst a careful guide to all who have lost the way be pleasing waters to all those who thirst a careful guide to all who have lost the way Loving sons and daughters to the old, being our bonded treasure to the poor. Be father and mother to the orphan. Loving sons and daughters to the old, being our bonded treasure to the poor. Oh, be kind to all people, care for every person, do all you can of your by the hearts. Be kind to all people, care for every person, do all you can of your by the hearts. Minds of men, in minds of men. Oh, ye lovers of God, oh, ye lovers of God, oh, ye lovers of God, oh, ye lovers of God. That was my guest, Nicole Best, singing a Baha'i prayer recently recorded right next door in Tonal Park Studios. Shout out to our engineer, Don, for live mixing that track and to Alex Vedavi for, for accompanying Nicole on percussion. This is Interfaith-ish, our bi-weekly show on WOWD 94.3 FM, where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and my guest this morning are the powerful voice we just heard singing, Nicole Best, a program coordinator with the D.C. Baha'i Community's Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program, and Ormoz Katki, a lay priest with the Zoroastrian Association of Metropolitan Washington. In the first half of our show, I asked Ormoz and Nicole about their experience in the Zoroastrian and Baha'i traditions, particularly in celebration of Nowruz, the new year, which begins this evening, marking the start of spring. And now, as we do every episode in the second half of our program, it's time to turn the mics over to my dear guests to ask some questions of each other, anything that they'd like to follow up on about each other's stories, anything they were familiar with coming in today that they want to understand better about each other's traditions, anything they realize that they may have misunderstood. On our show, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning, while at the same time not being afraid to get into some interfaith-ish. So... With that, I turn it over to my dear guests. Who would like to start? Great, I can start. Um, well, I want to thank you so much. I've learned so much about Zoroastrianism, and um, I, I wanted to ask just because I, I was sharing a little earlier about uh, this time of fast that the Baha'is all over the world have just completed. This is the last day. And I wanted to know that uh, if, if in the Zoroastrian tradition there was also a period of fasting, so in our religion, uh, 
fasting and sort of monastic behavior is has is discouraged as as a way it's thought of as, as something that that weakens the body and makes it more vulnerable to evil just the way that we have seen it and so in, instead our our um celebrations are more actually about eating yeah. <laughs> when yeah, we get together we actually have um uh, at, over the course of the year including numbers there are six times of the year called the gumbars where where um historically historically the community comes together and has a large feast and those who are who are wealthier will will typically will pay for it so that those who are mm. poorer can have a mm -hmm. can have a good meal on that on that day wow. and here we try to to perpetuate that vibe on the gumbars we have the children in our children's class um collect food to donate to a to a soup kitchen wow that's so beautiful so there is that service element in there and and one more question that i was thinking about as you were speaking was about the prayers and what what those prayers are like are they translated into english do you speak say them in a different language because um, you were saying some of them are quite long uh, so what what is that like yeah so it's, it's, a, it's a really good point and something that is important here now that we're in the in the west in iran and india um, the, the languages range from a language that's very close to ancient Sanskrit to languages that are cl closer but not quite to, to, to modern Persian. And they are the, – the people who listen to the prayers will not know what they mean quite typically unless they recognize that section, happen to know what it means. And in the West, we are starting to find, I think, as priests that – People are asking many more questions. What do these prayers mean? Why are we saying it? Why are we saying it five times, for example, with questions like that? And so in our community here, we're now starting to actually have, when the priests say the prayers, we actually give out, and typically it's been historically been done by heart, we, but we give out to the congregation, we give out a sheet for them to read along and say it with the priests, and there is a translation under it. And I think this is going to become a much more important part of the tradition mm -hmm. here in the West. So I've always, um, I don't know very much about the about the Baha'i faith, and and one thing I've been struck about it, of course, is just how much how much it, it's very universal. There are people all over the world. If my understanding is correct, the the main Baha'i temple is actually in Israel, actually not in Iran, and we Zoroastrians are now going now all over the world. And I'm always interested in learning the lessons from cultures. Like I, I, I've always thought of Judaism in this way as having a diaspora in this way. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on on how Baha'ism has, as it's become much left around, become much more international, how it has adapted to different communities around the world while uh, maintaining a unity. Yeah, that is such a beautiful question. I think we are always learning about that. The the unity, I think, comes with the the writings and adhering to the writings, studying the writings of Baha'u'llah, um, of other figures in the faith, and um, upholding those standards as closely as, as possible. Um, and I think what's beautiful, we've started to see with the spread of the Baha'i faith, how cultures in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or in Australia um, or in, in parts of India, how, how that has uh, 
allowed for a space for different elements of culture, whether it be the type of music that comes out of the inspiration from these writings, um, the way people interact, how they uh, visit people, like visiting each other in their homes or what that might look like. But I think um, it, it definitely takes time for for those who have started sharing the, the Baha'i faith. For instance, uh, in in um, many Baha'is are from, or many of the early Baha'is are from Iran because that's where it originated. And so Baha'is were traveling all around the world and, and spreading this message with many people. And the more that the Baha'i faith uh, was embedded in a, in a culture, you started to see um, how it inspired community life. People got together. Um, and also it started to break down a lot of things like one principle in, in the in the Baha'i faith is the equality of men and women. And so in some cultures that doesn't really exist. This There's kind of a difference in our own culture. We used to still see it. Um, so what was really beautiful and an example that that I that comes to mind is in India one one particular community um, had embedded or had been studying about the Baha'i faith and learning about these quotations from Baha'u'llah so much so that they recognized that the equality of men and women was was a necessity for progress and so women who weren't a part of um, of conversations with men were invited and you started to see a breakdown of that kind of inequality. Um, not to say it's completely gone now, but it was a step forward because of the inspiration from the writings. Um, also the caste system in India is something that has been around for thousands of years. And you started to see for the sake of unity, people coming together from different castes, learning from each other, which this is a practice that's been ingrained in that society. So I think also in DC, it lends the question of what do these, what do these principles look like and how will it change levels of culture here? Um, so working with people from many different backgrounds, from people who've lived decades in DC to people who've just moved here, how does a conversation look between different people? And um, if unity is the goal, how can we maintain that through through our interactions? Um, so yeah, I think we continue to look look uh, and learn about it, look at it. But um, yeah, it's it's a very beautiful beautiful principle, I think, is that diversity and unity. That's interesting because because our community has historically been very ethnically based. There's not many Zoroastrians in the world. We're about 100 to 150,000. Oh, wow. Not many of us. And now, and now, but now that we've, we've moved to the West, um, and many families like mine are intermarried with the spouse is mm -hmm. not a Zoroastrian. And, and there's there's much more. Um, we live in different places where we have much, many more influences, and so, and so I'm I'm always interested in learning the lessons from other mm -hmm. cultures as they've had to adapt to mm -hmm. to this. So, so one thing I've wondered is that is that Baha'i has started in Iran, yes. and it, I wonder if it was very Iranian centric. I mean, to, this, this, for for many Iranians or Austrians, they really feel that they are they are the, 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 the oldest and the truest of Iran, that they're, they're Iranian super patriots, really. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering if in the early days, um, was, there, was there a tension between uh, being, um, being Iranian that way mm. Or, mm. Uh, or, 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 or not, or how was that? 
Yeah, I think because the principle of the oneness of humanity is really at the core, um, one must be free of kind of that either, I don't know, sense of, of um, that this is insular. And so you, you do understand that in order to make a better world, in order for communities to develop and progress, it takes the contributions from everyone. And so what that has done is allowed for kind of an openness and sharing these things. And I think more and more uh, you see just the Baha'is being so inclusive of people of different backgrounds and, and these teachings being for everyone, whether you decide to become a Baha'i or not, people are, are touched by those words and they're very universal. So I think there, from the beginning, there was a desire to spread the message to people outside of Iran. Um, there's still a Baha'i community in Iran, but I, I think it's because of that vision of the oneness of humanity, it has reached more and more people because that's just the reality of, of what oneness means. And once again, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We've been uh, listening to our conversation between Nicole Best, a program coordinator with the D.C. Baha'i Community's Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program, and Ormuz Katki, a lay priest with the Zoroastrian Association of Metropolitan Washington. Um, I'd like to ask you, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, um, thinking about, you know, we've been learning so much about each other's traditions. Um, if, if there's something maybe that's a... A, a misunderstanding or a um, an, a commonly held misconception about each each of your traditions that you want to help our our listeners um, you know think differently about the next time they hear about the Zoroastrian tradition or about the Baha'i faith. Uh, or most is there is there anything that uh, you want to set the record straight on? <laughs> there there is one thing in the center of our temples. There is a fire towards which we focus our prayers on. And so, and so, and so we've been, some people have called us fire worshipers mm. as a result of that. And, and it's sort of pejorative in, in many ways. And, and it, it reflects on this fire is a central metaphor in our religion for, for purity, for cleanliness, for a, for a focus as, as one, as being one of, of one of, um, Aura Mazda's uh, creations. Um, if you've ever gone camping and it's gone below freezing and you can't start a fire, <laughs> that's what I tell all, all the kids in my class. You will appreciate that creation <laughs> very much. So, so, um, so it, it, I think it's important to remember that yes, we have fire in the center, but we're not, we're not, we're not worshiping it. We're simply directing our prayers toward it, and it becomes a. We maintain that fire. And it's in our temples. It's not. It's not supposed to go out. So mm -hmm. in the temples in Iran and India, they have been maintained for. Some fires for um, over a thousand years, wow. actually, wow. and to me, it's a symbol of the continuity of the community. Because mm -hmm. to, to make the fire, people from different from different professions contribute something to the fire to have it started. Mm -hmm. So it's a symbol of the continuity of the community. And I've been to a number of of interfaith concerts and things where the Zoroastrian community comes in in sort of procession with with uh, an an auntie or an uncle who's got the got the the, the yes. bowl of fire there and you could sort of see the other people who are in the in the church or the synagogue or whatever kind of <laughs> sitting back a little bit like oh no i hope this goes okay right. i can i had the same feeling too <laughs> nicole what about with the uh with the baha'i faith are there commonly held misconceptions if if people mm -hmm. 
I've heard about this new religion. Yeah, a few that I've heard. Uh, one is that the Baha'i faith is a sect of Islam. Um, the other is that the Baha'i faith believes kind of in, in all religions and, and kind of that train of thought. And, and so I think the latter is more on the right track. But uh, again, seeing that um, the Baha'i faith isn't necessarily a sect of Islam, it's, it sees its, uh, itself as the continuation of one religion that throughout humanity's evolution, we have had different divine educators that have come at different times of humanity's um, of humanity's evolution. And so now we live in a time that we need new guidance and Baha'u'llah has come as the newest uh, manifestation of God to bring these teachings to humanity of a, of a united world. Um, and so it's a little different than seeing just all religions um, as, as um, like a melting pot. Yeah, a melting pot, exactly. But seeing that Baha'u'llah is the divine teacher for, for Baha'is and for the world. Great. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for, for helping to illuminate uh, some of these ideas. And uh, I don't know, in Zuras, you know, is there a, uh, a Noruz or Noruz uh, 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 greeting that you say? We simply say Noruz Piruz. Noruz Piruz. All right. Well, Noruz Piruz to, to both of you. Happy Noruz. Happy Noruz. Oh, and I, I forgot to say, are there any um, upcoming events or announcements that you guys want to share with, uh, with our guests, things that you want to invite them to, or activities? The Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington is having their annual Martin Luther King celebration. It's usually on his birthday. It was snowed out, so this time it's going to be on his death anniversary mm. on April 7th, I believe, at New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. There'll be, there'll, be, um, there'll, be, there'll be choirs, there'll be singing, there'll be, there'll be some lectures as mm -hmm. well. Great. And uh, I, we spoke about the Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program earlier. If, if anyone is interested to learn more about how to get their middle schoolers involved or become a facilitator or mentor for that program, you can always reach out to junioryouth at dcbahai.org. Also, to this coming Sunday at the Baha'i Center in D.C., at 11 a.m., there will be devotions and prayers uh, commemorating Noruz. Oh, terrific. Perfect. All right. And be sure to uh, look for Nicole's album, hopefully out later this new year. All right. Thank Excellent. You. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Dear listeners, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my terrific guests, Nicole Best and Ormoz Katki. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. You know, it was one year ago, almost to the day, that we launched Interfaith-ish right here on Tacoma Radio. And I, I love my team, and I'm so proud of the work that we've done on this show. Thanks also to Marika and Steve and Olivia at the station for all their encouragement. And I want to just give a happy, uh, special happy birthday interfaith air horn salute to all of you. All right. So thank you, dear listeners, for being with us this past year. You can find all of our previous episodes of Interfaith-ish on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish, and you can email us about Interfaith-ish that you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail 
intrafaith.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks with a special episode featuring rock star author Sue Katz Miller and her new book, The Interfaith Family Journal. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. <laughs>